Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you. My name is Matt Moberg. So happy that you are with us tonight. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm, um, 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 that, that last song, we, we don't talk enough, you guys, about the music that we're doing with our um, messages, but that, uh, that hit me. That is, um, I haven't seen my wife all day because I've been on the grind and didn't really see her much yesterday either. And in this place of feeling tired and feeling like you are afraid of the waves that are coming your way, that's just, uh, that did something to me. So thank you guys for singing that. In fact, we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about um, living as people of faith in the age of fear. And it comes to mind for me because we are, as Christian made aware, we are uh, at the end of October, which first and foremost means that it's Halloween season. Can I get an amen? <laughs> are there no other Halloween enthusiasts in the house? Thank you. Okay. I love Halloween. I always have. Um, used to be very good at the trick or the treat. Actually, before I, I better, I need to get some permission really quick before I tell this story that I was thinking about telling. Oh my God. Mom. Are you I was, well, I have a question. I can't just rush into this sort of thing. Do you remember when we were in that church that made us think that Halloween was satanic? Yeah. And we skipped Halloween? Do you remember when you took that from me? Yeah, I do. Okay, do you mind if I share that really quick? You don't okay. want me to say, all right, never mind, just, never mind, forget it. <laughs> Hypothetically, there was a family once that, um, that was led to believe by their local church that, uh, Halloween, <laughs> that Halloween is, is, it's satanic is what it is. And, and so that family then, they proceeded to stay at home and watch movies and have skip it competitions. Y'all remember skip it? Where am I going with this right now? I don't know, nobody does. But... Here's my point, is that was only one night, and, and granted, that you might be pro-Halloween, you might be anti, you might have good reasons, you might have terrible reasons, we can talk later if you'd really like to do that. My point being is that was one night in 1995, and while it'd be safe to dismiss that as uh, sometimes maybe Christians get a little over-anxious about the realities of the world around them, and they quickly want to run, not my parents, but they quickly want to run inside, lock the doors, draw the drapes, and play skip it all night, as opposed to engaging the world around you because you start staring at those waves and the roar of the storm and that can make you a little anxious sometimes and so that is what I would like to talk about tonight. How do we as people of faith live, move, breathe in an age of fear? What is our calling? What, what are we supposed to take on? What is it supposed to look like to actually, are we supposed to run away or are we supposed to resist when evil is at your door? If you have your Bibles, the text I want to look at tonight is, um, actually, first I need to show you this. Who knows this song? Anybody? Who said that? Brad, yeah, I think it's Cockburn. That's how I was reading. Is it Coburn? Okay, that's embarrassing. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm really glad I didn't proceed with the Cockburn before the Coburn came out. That's really nice. I was asked to uh, uh, write a song a couple of months ago, and I was in the midst of a huge writer's block. And so what I do when I'm in the midst of a huge writer's block is I like to tap into the better songwriters that are out there, like Bruce Cockburn, for example, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> see some, like, can I be inspired by what they have put out there? And so I, I, you know, I read through uh, Leonard Cohen and John Lennon and Bob Dylan and Chance the Rapper, and, and then I came across this lyric, and it froze me. It froze me. When you're lovers in a dangerous time, 
Sometimes you're made to feel as if your love is a crime. Nothing worth having comes without some kind of a fight. You gotta kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Nothing worth having comes without some kind of a fight. You gotta kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. That's not just a good song, that is a gospel truth. For people who are following the ways of Jesus and practicing the ways of Jesus in your life and in your community, you belong to a kingdom that kicks back when evil is at the door. And so what I want to talk about tonight is what does it actually look like to be these lovers in a dangerous time, to resist with some kind of consistency, with some kind of like rhythm to what we do. And how I want to look at that is going to the text in 1 Peter 5. You have your Bibles in front of you, but if you do not, they'll be up here on the screen. It's a short text. It reads like this. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whoever he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood, and might I add your sisterhood, thank you Debbie Manning last week, in the world. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, faith, knowing that you're not alone. For the sake of trying to justify the time and the money that I have invested into my seminary education, can I point something out really quickly to you? Before we get too Halloween-y with this text right here, when we read things like, oh, there is a devil, your adversary apparently, who roars about uh, like a roaring lion, I want to make it clear that Peter is not talking about a horned figure in red. He is not talking about some metaphysical darkness that is always lurking nearby. He is not talking about that constant temptation to drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do. This is something a little bit bigger than that right there. What Peter is doing here is a linguistic device that, on the surface, it certainly looks very innocent. But in the substance of what he's saying, it could incite a riot. Here's what I mean. Peter is talking about a roaring lion. The lion is symbolically representing, back in that day and has throughout history, the role of the emperor, the king. So Peter is writing to Christians in Roman provinces, five of them to be exact, and he is saying there is a roaring lion. Now when Peter put pen to paper, the lion of his time, sorry, I don't mean to just, I'm so sorry, I'm getting too cozy over here right now. The lion of his time was not just your standard king, was not just your standard emperor, it was the emperor Nero, who was crazy. Who was, he, he's the only emperor who actually got tried and held guilty by his people. He burned down the city, maybe, we don't really know, ended up committing suicide, lost his mind. Now, why Peter is so concerned about the emperor Nero at this point in history is Nero steps up onto the throne. And Nero is a public figure. He's an artist, he's a poet, he is out and about with the people. And as he is out and about with the people, he now and then will hop on Twitter and say things like, I am the best there has ever been, I am the greatest, I am the most talented, I have the best memory. And the one people inside of his city that would say, we beg to disagree, were the Christians. The Christians would listen to him and say, that's, that's not true. You aren't all that you are trying to make us all believe that you are. There's a flaw in your argument. Now, this wouldn't have been a huge issue if the Christians were just some, some kind of side show that could be easily swept to the side and forgotten about. But the problem is, is that the time when Nero took the throne is simultaneously 
the time when Christians were growing. They were growing at a rapid pace, expanding, and so Nero did what tyrants throughout history have done. He shut it down through oppression and violence. And as history tells us, thousands of Christians were slaughtered at the hands of Nero. The Apostle Paul was killed by Nero. Peter himself was killed by Nero. Nero would kill Christians, and he would take their bodies and put them on stakes, and he'd light them on fire throughout the city for the sake of illumination at night. So when Peter is talking about a roaring lion, contrary to maybe how we have interpreted this text in the past as uh, the dangers of secular society, the dangers of, of drinking and the dangers of films that are provocative, the dangers of cashiers that don't say Merry Christmas to you. When Peter is talking about a roaring lion, he is not talking about that cashier. He's not talking about the teenage girl at Starbucks. When Peter is talking about a roaring lion, he is talking about the most powerful person in the land. And that person is putting an end to Christianity as we know it. Nero was the very first persecutor of the faith. And Peter writes this text to five different provinces, people who are outside the city limits, who would not have experienced the actual oppression quite yet, but what they would have experienced was the roar of the lion. They would have heard the rumors of the war. And so Peter writes this letter, he passes it along, and he says, you need to know that the evil that you are sensing, the roar that you are hearing, it's real. Evil is close. Oppression is at hand. There is a roaring lion in your land, and he seeks to devour everything that is good. And at the very moment where you'd expect Peter to say, so get on your Jordans and run in the opposite direction, he says, resist. Resist. In an age where everyone else around you might be putting up their house for sale, moving to some place safe and quiet, where they can live undisturbed. Peter says, this lion right here, it is a man. And he needs to be resisted. And what I find fascinating, and why this text has really been sitting so heavily on me lately, it's spoken deeply into my life, is there are three specific ways in what uh, Peter tells us that if you want to actually be about a righteous resistance, you want to actually embody something good in the world or something bad, there are three specific ways that you need to be fixated on so that you can be forming in your life and in your community life. And I want to highlight those three ways to you tonight. The first way, he says, is uh, you need to be sober. Be sober. The text is written in Greek here. It's written in the imperative moon, which grammatically means that Peter is not suggesting this thing. He's not throwing out this as like, here's an idea that you should probably kick around. Maybe it's right for you. Maybe it's not. He is saying this is a commandment. If you're going to move through this world the way that I need you to move through this world, you need to be sober. Now, to understand what he's saying when he says be sober, you have to understand it in its correlate. When he says be sober, what is he saying? Do not be... Oh, y'all don't know? What's the opposite of sobriety? Thank you. Wow. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Peter says be sober. Now, I know that clearly, given that right there, you guys have, I have a friend once that was intoxicated. <laughs> she was. It was long before we were married, but she, um, just kidding. Just kidding, babe. Hey, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. 
But I uh, obviously have never been <laughs> intoxicated. And so when my friend was, though, I took some notes and I picked up some insights on the dangers of intoxication. Some of the dangers of intoxication, as I'm sure well, you may or may not know, is uh, when you are intoxicated, you are not mentally firing as fast as you usually would be. When you are intoxicated, your senses are numb. When you are intoxicated, harmful things could be happening to you, but you really have no idea. All the hell could be falling down on your face right there, but all you notice is that it's getting a little bit warmer. When Peter is writing this text right here, he is saying, be sober, because I need you to sit up and not lay down. I need you to be wise and not be wobbling all over the place. I need you to value the life of the mind to the point where you can see past the chaos that you have been drinking and getting drunk upon and actually see what truth might look like. Peter says, be sober. Now I can tell, I can sense collectively that there's some anxiety around here as if St. Peter is personally reaching into your liquor cabinet and taking away all of your Pinot Grigio. Let me tell you this right now. This commandment, when we understand it in the context of resistance, and we understand it in what Peter is talking about at this time, to say that this is a spiritual prohibition against Pinot Grigio or Merlot or, what's yours? What, 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 you want me to name yours? Malbec, okay, Malbec, whatever it might be. That's just un, that, okay, that's unfaithful, though, to the text. That's just not what this is saying right here. This is not a spiritual prohibition against Pinot Grigio. You don't have to put a sunset on all of your tequila sunrises. Amen, Lauren? No? We're done there? <laughs> Peter is saying, be sober. Be intellectually clear. Don't lose your wits, and this is not the time to sit back and just enjoy yourself. This is not the time to stop caring for the world to not matter to you. This isn't about, you cannot do that right now. So my question for us tonight, and maybe you individually, is if, if I were to give you a sobriety test right now, how would you pass? Have the roars of the world gotten to you? The rumors of war? All of the fears, the anxiety? I mean, I don't know about you, but if you watch CNN for more than an hour, you will lose your mind. <laughs> if you sit around and watch Fox, you're not much better. How are we going to deal in a sober fashion while being engaged in the world without becoming drunk on the fear that is trying to serve you? And this is an important question for the church. Because in my understanding, even in this, this series that we're doing on traitors and turncoats, we're talking about the subversive ways of Jesus. My understanding is that the church has a history of over-serving people, of making people drunk on something that is not good. The church... By and large, a lot of us have experienced an intoxication of Christianity and we've lost the invitation of the incarnation of Christ. That's why, for example, that if you go to most church services, we have a lot of spiritual conversations. The theme, by and large, is around uh, how is your personal relationship with Jesus doing? What's not being said, though, is the story of Jesus in your personal relationship with the world around you, the pursuit of justice. And why that matters is because there's narratives that are at play that are nowhere at play in the Bible. And then there's narratives in the Bible that are nowhere at play in us. Are we actually approaching Scripture, brothers, sisters, world, the news we read, all of it? Are we doing it with a sober mind? How would you pass 
a test of sobriety tonight. And one of the ways I would know is that um, to suggest, as we have done so in this series, that there, I- there is a priority in Scripture, a preferential treatment for the poor and the oppressed, and there is a calling on the kingdom of God to be kicking back on the darkness. To do so is going to cause people who have been drunk for a long time to be threatened by that kind of sobriety. I was talking with somebody last uh, week about how we showed a documentary and held a conversation years ago um, around white supremacy and how that is contradicting all the kingdom of God is advancing in this world. And in a room full of Christians, where I thought we could have an honest dialogue about this, thought this would birth something beautiful, the first thing a Christian woman stood up and said was, why can't we just talk about Jesus? We can talk about Jesus. But you're not going to want to talk then about what Jesus talked about. Because Jesus is always moving us in this direction. If he is Lord, then he's leading us into liberation. He's inviting us to come with him as you understand that Jesus, Jesus, the Romans, the authorities, the powers that be, they would have no problem if Jesus had just stayed out in Nazareth. If he would have just stayed in the Galilee region. That would have been right in line with the Roman pacification program. It would have been a problem. You can talk about all the enemies you want to love, how we should be valuing forgiveness, how you can walk on water, you can feed the multitudes, you can do all of those things from far away and not care about what is actually happening behind the scenes. But Jesus says, actually, I'm going to come to Jerusalem, and I'm going to move close. And the first time that scriptures talk about wanting, the authorities talking about wanting to actually kill Jesus is the moment after he steps on their motives and their money. You can do powerful things. You can step into powerful places when you have a sober mind. How would you pass that sobriety test? The second thing Peter says is, uh, we're going to need you to be vigilant. That word vigilant in the Greek right there, it actually means I need you to be active. I need you to be doing something. It's insufficient for you to go on Facebook, watch a video, sit at home and watch the news, and shake your head and ball your fists. It's insufficient to have a conversation with a friend about things that it's an echo chamber. What are you doing? Are you a part of the kingdom that is kicking the darkness until it bleeds? Do you have boots on your feet? How are you embodying this different way of being? I mean, this is the daunting question that I think hangs over all of our lives is how do we actually bring our words to the flesh? How do we actually go about this in a faithful way that is real? That we're not just put on a show. That we're actually in pursuit of something. I want to, um, I want to put a challenge before you right now. As a lover in dangerous time, I'm going to call this a dare. Man, I'm really getting into drugs and alcohol tonight. But I, Dare to be different. What is your daily act of resistance against evil? I mean, aside from, you know, crises and tragedies where we show up in solidarity and we show up in protests and we show up to offer our support and our voices, resources, how are you daily going about practices of resistance as Peter says that you should. What is your play for bringing all of your words into the flesh? 
I have a few. I don't have many. I think that's one of the reasons why I think this text has been sitting on me so heavily, is that it is a call, again, not a suggestion, not a, 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 some free advice that Peter's offering out to people. It's a call and it's a commandment that you need to be resisting evil. And so how do you go about that business? My answers are far too few. Far too few to actually confidently say that I am a Christian. I'm not doing enough. I'm not embodying enough. I'm not sober enough. But I have a few. First one um, that comes to mind, and I, and I want to offer this just in the hopes that maybe they would, it would encourage you to think about some as we try to get more pragmatic and practical in these things. The first one that comes to mind for us is that I have a family that eats food. I know that's absurd and kind of crazy, but they eat a lot of food. And so what that means is that Lauren and I often have to go to a grocery store. Next to our house, there is a, what's it called, Lauren? Byerly's? Byerly's. Oh my gosh. Byerly's. Thank you. Byerly's and Kowalski's. We have a Kowalski's and we have a Byerly's. In between those two right there, there is a small little market that is run by a Somalian family. This Somalian family, you go to that market, they may not have the food that you need. I have bought food multiple times from them where it's been expired food and we've had to go take it back and figure out a new way forward. But the purpose of going to these places that are often flyover territory, the purpose of actually taking, getting hijacked and being disinterrupted by something that is good right there, is that right now in Minneapolis, we have a crisis where many Somalian people do not feel welcome. So when we think about that, is that something on the news that we just get angry about, that we have spirits of justice, we'll throw out a tweet here or there, when we hear about Somalian kids from Minneapolis who are flying back to fight for ISIS, do we, do we go to that place where it's like, what are they doing? Or is it like, what have we done? Because when those kids are going back to ISIS, understand that's an indictment on our inability to actually be hospitable. That's an indictment on us not actually making people feel welcome. And so one of the ways, one of the small daily acts of resistance, as much as is possible, that we try to go about doing things differently is we try to shop at places where people need to feel welcome, they need to know that they belong, and they need to know that their business is important in our community. Another way for me is um, I try to participate in at least twice a month and then have relationships that stem out of that in interfaith conversations. So this is a photo from last Wednesday morning. Um, that lady right there, her name is Karen Rotz, and it was a workshop on Jewish organizing and how anti-Semitism is at the root of white supremacy. Inside of this room, you had maybe 30 to 40 of us, and there was Unitarian Universalists, there were Jews there, there was, believe it or not, spiritual atheists. I had never heard that before, but that, that was real. They were there. Uh, a few Lutherans and a couple of agnostics. And what was amazing is you actually lean in beyond the bubble that you typically move inside of. You understand that they, like you, are having this deep hunger for a better world around you. They, like you, are trying to figure out what it looks like to embody, to profess, to make pronouncements of good news in a world that is so crooked sometimes. They, like you, are trying to roll up their sleeves and go to work. And it is a beautiful thing when we can go beyond the bubble and understand that we have partners and friends with hearts like ours and expand the circle that's one of the ways in an age of tribalism and an age where we are taught to keep to our own in mind our own business. Um, that's one of the ways that I'm prioritizing in my life. The last one I'll tell you is this is, um, you're going to think it's maybe a little foolish, but, but I'll tell you it anyways. I have a community network of predominantly white family and friends. 
And what I believe to be a cure in actually, like, actually going about progressing in a lot of these problems and the epidemics that we are facing in the world, we've got to have conversations. There's so much power inside of actually talking about things face to face. The problem is, is that by and large, a lot of my white friends do not want to have conversations. And so what I want to do then is strategically figure out what I am carrying in us, what they are carrying inside of them, how can I wear it on me to the point where they're going to actually talk about it? You don't want to talk about Standing Rock, you might when I'm wearing a sweatshirt. You don't want to talk about how we're treating the LGBT, you might want to when I'm wearing that shirt. You want to talk about white supremacy, Black Lives Matter, you don't want to uh, go there, you might want to wear that shirt. Now you might look at that and say that I'm trying to be provocative or controversial. That's not true. I'm trying to pursue conversations. And I will tell you this. The best conversations that I have had in the past year have all happened while wearing one of those shirts right there. That's a small, maybe even dumb thing. I don't know. But how are you actually going about a dare? How are you actually putting skin and bone and flesh and clothes on your beliefs and convictions? How are you pursuing this thing? What is the daily act of resistance? Or are you just angry, incapable of staying sober enough to see reality for what it is so that you can pursue something good? What are you doing? If you need a helpful advice on something that Peter offers, a daily act of resistance, a way to go about living this right, Peter says, be steadfast in your faith. This is not a time to um, be spiritually navel-gazing. This isn't a time to be wishy-washy. There is a need right now for you to, to know who you are and whose you are and to step with authority against the lions in the land. That's a call to be a lover in a dangerous time. Be steadfast in your faith. The word for steadfast here. It's a fascinating word. Does anybody know what that is? Is Bill, is Bill right here? Bill, what do you think that is? Yes. Yes, thank you. Bill is brilliant. You need to spend time with that man. That word right there in the Greek is stereos. That is where, we, as Bill said, we get our word stereo from. That's the same word for steadfast. So what Peter is saying here is you need to have a little bit of a depth to it. You need to have your faith fed from multiple directions. It's, not, it's insufficient to come and get your Jesus on Sunday night and then do nothing as far as your own spiritual growth later on. How are you feeding your faith? How are you pursuing what God has put in you? Stereos. Surround sound. I've, I remember, does anybody remember the first time you experienced surround sound? Do you remember? I think I was 13 years old. I had a forehead full of pimples, and I was standing inside of Sam Goody. And the reason why I remember that is because I remember the song that they played. Where's, where's Tyler? Tyler knows the song. Where's Tyler? Is Tyler here? Tyler B. Okay, Tyler, I need you to sing this song with me. <laughs> Where are you? Okay. You ready? Can you stand up, please? <laughs> Seems like yesterday you used to rock the show. I laced the track the lock. Are you serious right now? You're going to abandon me like that? We do this in private. Uh, we'll do it later in private then. Fine. Favorite name. What I remember about that moment, though, is the brilliance of surround sound is that when the surround sound comes all the way around you, the roar drops down. You get your faith fed in multiple directions. How can you feed your faith beyond these moments that we have together on Sunday nights?
One of the ways for me, again, I'm trying to be pragmatic tonight. I'm trying to, one of the ways for me that has been a burden on me lately is in my interfaith conversations with a lot of people, specifically even with uh, Jewish activists and organizers in the community, a lot of times they will, off the top of their head, tell you about the Exodus story and what it means to them and why it empowers their work today, but then they will go further and tell you about the Jewish activists and the organizers and the people who are movement and, move and doing important and powerful things in the 1800s, in the 1900s, in the 60s, in the 70s, present-day people. Do you know the story that you are stepping inside of? We had a group the other night go down and hear Cornell West at St. Olaf, and it was amazing to hear him talk about John Coltrane and talking about walking with King. Do you know your ancestry? It's one thing to know that Nero killed a lot of Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago. But do you know about the Barrington brothers? Do you know about King? Do you know about Dorothy Day? Do you know about Mother Teresa? If you want to feed your faith, understand the place of power that Christianity can be. You belong to a line of people, a bunch of Daniels, who were shutting lions' mouths. If you want to feed your faith, feed it from multiple directions. Experience some surround sound. That is why we are having this meal afterwards tonight. Tonight in the basement, um, we want to talk about uh, membership, I guess on paper is what we're calling it, but how can we can actually pursue a better world together how we can pursue relational depth and authenticity and transformation, how we can do these things in a committed and beautiful fashion. Uh, we want to do that together after the service. Before we get there, though, um, let's take some time with the bread and the cup. Now, I know that after Debbie's message last week, it might be a little whiplash to see all men up here tonight. That wasn't our intention. Debbie is downstairs right now. She's working hard, actually, to set up uh, what we have going on afterwards. But this is what we gather around. The bread and the cup. The body and the blood. This is how we re-engage and re-feed our faith. That oftentimes in an age of fear can feel fragile. And can feel like something we tack on. But Jesus says that this is my body. And it was broken for you. And so whenever you gather with your people as the body of Christ, you take this and you remember your good God. You remember what God did for you. Jesus then grabs the cup hours before his death, before he goes all the way. He grabs the cup and he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink from this, remember we cannot forget the story we are stepping in. We cannot forget the call in our lives to kick back on the darkness until it bleeds. I know we do wrestle against principalities and powers. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but sometimes we do. Sometimes evil is less fictional and more fleshly. So what does it look like to be lovers in a dangerous time that do not run away from the world, but resist in a way that Christ resisted? What is your daily act of resistance against evil? In a moment, I'm going to invite you to uh, come and take the bread and dip it in the cup. We will have gluten-free elements here in the middle. 
And um, there'll be people who want to pray with you over on the side. That this might be a night if you want to do that. I'd encourage you to do that. But before we go there, will you stand with me as we say the Lord's Prayer together as a family? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.